A reading from the Gospel of John, chapter 12, verses 1 through 8. Six days before the Passover, Jesus came to Bethany, the home of Lazarus, whom he had raised from the dead. There they gave a dinner for him. Martha served, and Lazarus was one of those at table with him. Mary took a pound of costly perfume made of pure nard, anointed Jesus' feet, and wiped them with her hair. The house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. But Judas Iscariot, one of his disciples, the one who was about to betray him, said, Why was this perfume not sold for 300 denarii and the money given to the poor? He said this not because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. He kept a common purse and used to steal what was put in it. Jesus said, leave her alone. She bought it so that it might show that she might keep it for the day of my burial. You always have the poor with you, but you do not always have me. The word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. Please be seated. She was a lifelong Methodist. Fiercely committed to her local congregation, a faithful supporter of Methodist causes, active in the district and conference ministries. She gave money for hospitals, children's homes, community ministries, and missionaries. She was a real Methodist. And a neighbor noted her denominational loyalty and asked her, Florence, what would you be if you were not a Methodist? And she said, why, I would be ashamed. (laughs) There was a day when there were many such Methodists and many such Baptists and Presbyterians and Episcopalians, but that day is no more. Denominational loyalty is not such a reality anymore. Those who were so loyal have mostly died out. And because they have died out, some have predicted that mainline churches may go the way of Sears Roebuck. There was a time, you see, when belonging to the church was part of what it meant to be a good citizen. That time is no more. The fastest growing demographic in the United States with regard to religion is the group called the nuns. Now that's not the sisters of the Catholic faith, but those who check none for their religious preference. They are the fastest growing group. Church membership used to matter, especially if you were a professional person, a business person, or a politician. Belonging to the right church was like belonging to the right civic club or country club or being invited to the right parties, that day is no more. There was a time when the mainline churches exerted a measure of political influence in our country. A time when Methodist bishops spoke, the country would listen. It is no more. Nowadays, the self-identified religious right is represented by leaders who have no idea what the Bible says. 
Leaders whose words, attitudes, and actions are often vulgar, mean-spirited, divisive. The idea of a Christian society is all but dead. It persists primarily in the imaginations of those who cling to the nostalgic fantasy that the United States was once a Christian nation, which it really never has been. The truth is, Christendom is no more. And in some ways, that's a sad thing. It's a hard thing. But in other ways, it's a good thing. It's a good thing in that being a Christian is no longer defined as belonging to an institutional church and going through the motions of being religious. Nowadays, increasingly, being a Christian is understood less as membership and more as discipleship. We are less bound by cultural expectations and even family expectations. My own children do not necessarily embrace my faith as I embrace it. They challenge me often. So our, the expectations are not there. And, and because of that, being a follower of Jesus is a choice that we must make. It's not something we inherit. It's not something into which we are born. It is a choice we must make. And we must make it not only when we first confess Christ as in confirmation. It is a choice we must make every day in everything we think, do, or say. Nowadays, being a Christian is a bit more like it was in the days of the Apostle Paul. You heard those words from Paul this morning from the third chapter of Philippians. For Paul, being a Christian, being a follower of Jesus, was a matter of life and death. Paul recalls recalls his former life as a scrupulous keeper of religious traditions. He says, if anyone has reason to brag about being religious, I've got more reasons. And he begins to list his pedigree. Born into the family of the chosen people, trained in the law, circumcised, zealous for God's word, a meticulous keeper of God's commandments, and so much a defender of the faith, the faith of his people. So much a defender of the faith of his people that he is willing to persecute those who dare confess a different version of that faith. Paul said, that's who I was. No one was more serious about their faith than I was. And he says, I count all of that as rubbish in comparison to the greater, infinitely greater relationship I now have with Jesus. It's an interesting thing in the Greek language, and I'll not say the word as it really is. It's very vulgar in the text, actually, in the Greek language. But basically what Paul says is, I count all of that as... As dog do. As dung. He dismisses all the elaborate trappings of his former life as rubbish... And he boils it all down to say, I want to know Christ. 
I want to know the power of his resurrection. I want to share in his suffering. I want to become like him in his death so that if possible, I may attain the new life that is in his resurrection. Paul lays aside everything else for the surpassing value of that which lies ahead of him. He says, I'm seeking to make Christ my own because Christ has made me his own. I'm claiming Christ because Christ has claimed me. Now, Paul doesn't claim that he's arrived at his destination. Far from it. He hasn't yet attained his true potential, but he is straining forward toward the goal of the high call of God in Christ. Being a Christian is no casual thing for Paul. It is everything. It is his life. He is a new creation in Christ. The old self, the false self, the self that was propped up by so many external factors and forces, that old self is dying The new self that is really the original self, the self made in God's image, the self restored by Christ, the self that is the new self, the true self, that self is coming to life. So that being a Christian consumes all of his passion, all of his energy, all of his ideas, all of his creativity. The old church of cultural Christianity is surely dying The church that will take its place is likely to be smaller, less organized, more organic. That's the word we like to use nowadays. It will be a church in which the faith is more like that of Paul. Fervent faith, daring faith, faith that sacrifices other options for the sake of Christ. That is the faith that will matter in the future. And you may be saying to yourself about now, well, preacher, it sounds like you are calling us to get serious about our faith. Well, that's true only in a very limited sense of the word serious. If by serious we mean focused, intentional, consistent, then yes, I am calling upon us to get serious about our faith. And I believe the scripture and the spirit are calling us to have that kind of seriousness about our faith. Beyond that, however, seriousness is not necessarily something we need. Remember, Paul was very serious as a Pharisee, as a persecutor of the church. None, were, none was more serious than he. He had a deadly seriousness. And there is nothing more deadly than religious seriousness misdirected. So how does the focus, how does the intentionality, how does the consistency of authentic faith really look? Is it always that of that intense personality like Paul? You know, Paul was, as we used to say, Paul was wound up tighter than a cheap watch. That's an old proverb because people don't wind watches anymore. But in the olden days, if you had a cheap watch, wind it up real tight, it might work. Paul was wound up tighter than a cheap watch. Is the true faith, the deep faith, the all-consuming faith, is it ever calmer than that? Is it ever gentler than that? 
I think John answers the question with the story of Mary. You remember Mary. She is the sister of Martha and their brother Lazarus. And Lazarus is the one whom Jesus called back from death. Martha, her sister, is the intense one in the family. She's the one who's organized. She's the woman who cooked for and served Jesus and his disciples. And you'll remember also that Martha is the one who complained to Jesus because her sister Mary wasn't helping. Mary had chosen to sit at the feet of Jesus and learn from Jesus. And Martha thought she ought to be up helping set the table. And Jesus said to Martha, well, Mary's chosen the better part. And today we hear how Mary takes a precious bottle of perfume, a kind of thing that would have been preserved for marriage, very costly. And she anoints Jesus with that perfume. And she wipes his feet with her hair. We never hear her speak a word. We are only told that she does this simple act of kindness and that the fragrance of the perfume fills the room and that Judas Iscariot, one of Jesus' disciples, complains about the wastefulness of this extravagant gesture. And we know from the story that Jesus receives this act of kindness as a kind of anointing for his impending death. We know that Jesus corrected Judas and reminded all of the disciples that they would always have opportunities to help the poor, but that this was an opportunity that was fleeting. And that is about all we know about what took place on that day. And it is all we need to know. It is enough that we know it. It is enough that John includes this in his gospel narrative. You see, this very quiet story is told alongside of Paul's passionate witness to his own faith. And because the story of Mary is told as part of the gospel, it actually stands over Paul's testimony. You may have noted a while ago that when I read the text from Philippians, you remained seated. When I read the text from the gospel, I asked you to stand. There is a reason we do that. It is because the gospel stands over the rest of Scripture. The gospel, because it is the most immediate, the most direct telling we have of the life and the death and the words and the actions of Jesus, we stand in reverence for the gospel. And so Mary's story, Mary's gentle act of kindness has about it an authority that is unrivaled even by the strong and penetrating words of Paul. So what does this mean? I believe it means this, 
that the power of simple kindness is the true power of Christ. Whether manifested in the old church that is passing away or in the new church that is coming into being around us, compassion is the true mark of Christ-like authenticity. Whether it's shown by an older, lifelong Methodist like Florence or by a young, on-fire convert from the ranks of the nuns, kindness, generosity, sacrifice of self in the name of Christ for the sake of others, that is what it means to be a follower of Jesus. I don't know how you see Dauphin Way. I don't know if you take much time to think about it. I, I get paid to think about such things. <laughs> and I'm not sure how I see Dauphin Way, to be honest with you. On the one hand, I know that our church has been around long enough to have many of the trappings of the old traditional church of culturally expected faith in which membership matters. We've been around for over 100 years, and so naturally we have that about us. In other ways, we are looking more and more like the emerging church in which discipleship is the main thing. I love Sunday school, but Sunday school is no substitute for those small groups in which we really get to know each other and really dig into the word and really hold each other accountable. And that movement of small groups belongs more to the church that is emerging than to the church that has been. And so we have both of those at Dauphin Way, but here's the thing. Christ is not exclusively present in one place or the other. I appreciate the fact that Christendom is basically dead. And I appreciate the fact that things like tall steeples will eventually go with it. Yet my experience is that Jesus is present in the old forms and in the new forms. His presence is manifested in acts of simple kindness. Many of you know that my wife has been in the hospital since January 11th. And so she recently moved to the infirmary to be a part of the rehab there. And because she's had to have surgery, she was put back into a room. And at first they put us in this little cell, this tiny little room where there's not really enough room to turn around. But now we have a suite. I tell you, somebody's looking out for us. And we've got this big window and it looks out on the city. And so as I'm there many days, much of the day, and I'm looking out the window and I'm looking downtown at our three tall buildings and that one weird, weird looking building over on the right that make up our skyline. But then if I look slightly to the Southwest, I see rising above the treetops the Dauphin Way steeple. 
And when I see that steeple, I am reminded of all the old institutional and cultural stuff associated with such architecture. And I think to myself, how long will it be there? But I must tell you, I see something else when I see that steeple. I see and I feel and I give thanks for all the acts of kindness that have been poured out upon my wife and me and our family by Dauphin Way. I see the power of simple kindness that is manifested in this congregation every day in multitudes of ways by old and young alike, by the traditional crowd and the contemporary crowd, by those who are so deeply Methodist and those for whom that is not so important. I see all of those who, like Mary, give sacrificially in the name of Christ for the sake of others. When I see that steeple, I see that and I know that just as it is with Mary's perfume, there's not an ounce of it wasted. Every act of kindness will accomplish God's will. And we live in the knowledge that we are loved. We were singing a moment ago, I will build my life upon the foundation of your love. How do we know that love? We know it first in those who share it with us. Just as most of us get to church because somebody invited us, all of us finally know the love of God in its fullness as those around us manifest that love to us. And that is what it means to be a follower of Jesus. And so as we come to the Lord's table, we always come in confession. We always come with the knowledge that we have failed to be an obedient church. And sometimes it takes the form of cultural idolatry, religiosity, and other times it takes the form of a kind of arrogance about all things new. But unless we love, unless we love our neighbors, unless we hear the cry of the needy, then we are lacking and we confess it. And we pray that God will forgive us and free us. The thing from which we need to be freed most is not just the cultural expectations or legalism, but from self, free from self. Free us for joyful obedience. With that in mind, let us come to the Lord's table.
Let us confess our need of this means of grace. These elements that represent to us the body and blood of our Lord. Let us pray.